morning. A couple of housekeeping items before I get into our text this morning. We're going to be having the bicycle rally. I think it was mentioned just a minute ago. This is to, there's a lot of folks that use our parking lot right around here, and we're happy they do that. We just want to capitalize on what's already going well. Let them know that we're here, that we love our community, and we love Jesus. Uh, we need volunteers. We still need about 12 volunteers in totality uh, to help us pull this event off. And this is a love on your community type event, so we're not beating people over the head with Bibles or nothing. It's meant to be a bridge and a segue to help promote us into Vacation Bible School. I know some have criticized Vacation Bible School in recent years since I've been a pastor, but let me say this. I love Vacation Bible School. I'm going to tell you why. I was saved at a Vacation Bible School when I was a child. And so you'll have a hard time convincing me that Vacation Bible Schools are not worth the time and effort for a church. It is always worth the time and effort to concentrate on children and to get on their level and teach the gospel at their level. It is always beneficial for a church to take special time and do that. Okay? All right. <clears throat> with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Also, while you're flipping there, I want to remind you that uh, they're taking drop-off for the yard sale. We're looking at a partnership here. Well, we've already done that with a church in Scotland, and that may be our next mission event. Uh, mission trip to them. Scotland is still on lockdown. We don't know when that'll be. I was supposed to go to Scotland last September and was not able to go because they pretty much got that country in much harsher lockdown than what we're in. So uh, that's that's probably about par for the course there uh, that, uh, you know, they're a bit more liberal in their policies and things over there than we are here. So uh, so we're just kind of waiting to see. And so we'll that may be it or if we're able, I think Haiti's also been on a similar uh, band of, of uh, places in the U.S. that they're telling us not to go to right now. So we'll see. We're praying that God will open doors so that we can be involved with that. Feet on the ground, not just in prayer and financial support. All right. Um, Luke chapter 6. Now, I have a lot of scripture today. So in the first service, and I didn't get a chance to talk to Michael about this, I, I had the uh, Lord kind of break it up. I read some of it at the beginning as a call to worship. And I'm, I went through. So the way I'm going to do this today is I'm just going to read this as I teach through it, all right, because there's so much of it as I preach and teach through this today. Uh, so uh, we're already probably looking at spending two years in Luke. It's well worth our time. But uh, this is uh, the Sermon on the Plain. Now let me say a couple things about this. <clears throat> Some people have said, well, that's the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. Yes and no. Yes, the content is similar, but the emphasis is different. I believe Jesus probably preached this sermon multiple times, right? There was a great preacher of yesterday known as R.G. Lee. My mentoring pastor loved him. Has anybody ever heard of R.G. Lee before? He had a sermon that he preached called Payday Someday. I actually have a copy of that sermon. He would go all over the country and preach that same sermon everywhere. Uh, my mentoring pastor said he actually got to hear R.G. Lee preach this sermon once. And somebody got up while he was preaching, and he called that man down in the middle. He stopped preaching and called him down for getting up out of his seat during the preaching, which is what I'm going to do today if you try to get up during this sermon. So stay in your seat. Just kidding. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Plain. Luke is going, the, the location here is different than the location in Matthew. Uh, so let's just kind of look here and the opening verses and see right out of the bat. And he came down with them and stood on a level place 
topography is important for theology. As I said earlier, when he's on the mountain, it's a place of great temptation spiritually. It's also a place of great spiritual intimacy is the mountain. Well, here he is on the plain, right? So this is the sermon for all of our brothers and sisters in Middle Tennessee who live on the, on the plain there, right, on the plateau, right? We're, we're all, for Matthew here in East Tennessee, we're in the mountains. But the, the, there's... great crowd of his disciples and a multitude of people Gentiles Coming like them, so he the possessed. He was able to touch them and heal them. Some have asked me this COVID nineteen season. Well, if we're all Jesus Christ, uh, can't we just buck all of the things that are being asked and just love and touch each other like we did before and not have to worry about it? Yeah, if you were God in human form, you could completely, you know, do whatever you wanted to do. But if you can't change. is best that you try to keep others as safe as you can, right? In a similar fashion here, you know, we don't tempt God. We don't grab snakes up and let them bite us as they did Paul and see if a see if a copperhead's going to make us sick or not. We're not called to tempt the Lord God. Now, should we trust God in difficult times? Yes, absolutely. But Jesus is able to touch the sick and not become sick and to heal them. Jesus is able to touch the infirm and not become like them and heal them, and he's able to touch everybody steered clear of and they no longer have possession. In addition to that, he teaches them. Jesus is constantly on the lookout here for the needs of the people, healing them, and when he heals them, he is teaching them. And remember, as he heals them, the healing is temporary. The the body will eventually die. The healing that he gives, the true need of the people is what? It is that they would come to know Christ and be saved. Now, I'm going to sit on a stool sometimes here because... Uh, I have a blister on my foot. I'm like two weeks into 40, and uh, it's not as fun as I thought it would be in some level. I fell in the shower this week, and I have a blister on my foot, so, you know, it's, it's good times. And if you're not there yet, just wait. Your day will come. Your day will come. All right, so, so then the last thing I want to point out here in this introduction is this. You know, when I first started teaching in youth ministry, I thought you couldn't be a youth pastor if you didn't have a bar stool to sit on while you taught the gospel, because that's what I saw my, my uh, youth pastor do years ago. But anyhow, so we're going back like it was in the 90s. So last thing here. <clears throat> What's the difference? Matthew writes to Jews so that they will understand Jesus is the Messiah who has come to the Jews. Luke, Dr. Luke, is writing to Theopolis, right? Theopolis, is he a Jew? No, he's not a Jew, is he? 
What is it? He is a Gentile like you and I. I don't think anybody in here that I know of is of Jewish descent at Grace Baptist Church. I could be wrong about that. But. So Luke is writing to people like us so that we will understand him better. Sometimes when I preach, I am able to be true to the meaning of the author. That's always what good preaching is about, being true to the meaning of the author. But I can emphasize different sections of a text. For example, at Easter time, perhaps I would preach the text about the thief on the cross. And I may emphasize the fact that the thief on the cross came to know Jesus and make a very evangelistic push that you can know Christ just like the thief on the cross and have confidence in that. And I can take that same text and preach it at a funeral. And I can emphasize the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, the thief could not have to enter into death with fear because Jesus tore the veil of death. You can see there, both of those sermons, the emphasis is different, but it is still true to the text of the Scripture. I think Luke is doing a similar thing here with the Sermon on the Plain. It is very much like the Sermon on the Mount, but there are slight differences. For one, Luke does not give as much content as Matthew does. So the things that he is emphasizing is important. If you're a note-taker, here's how I would break it down and make it simple. I would say Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount with the main thrust of that being Matthew 7, 7, and it is about righteousness. Matthew is, is pointing out and emphasizing righteousness or rather the lack thereof righteousness, that the Jews are not able to obtain the righteousness that Moses laid out in the Ten Commandments. But now you can seek, you can knock, and it will be answered, right? The righteousness is now obtainable is the main thing. There will be a seek, knock, and ask passage, but it's going to be about prayer. In Luke, the emphasis is different. The emphasis here in this section of Scripture is on God's action and our response. That's the difference between the two. God has acted in His coming. He stands there on the plain with them, on level ground with them where they are. It's about his, our response to God's actions and work. Jesus is coming. It is here the response of God's character to send Christ. Uh, this is good because God is forgiving. And because God is forgiving, there is a way that you are called to behave and act in accordance with that. Jesus, in this passage, is fleshing out for us what the kingdom looks like. What the kingdom looks like. He is inviting us to respond. The Sermon on the Mount here has nine Beatitudes. This Sermon on the Plain has four Beatitudes and four woes. Okay, four blessings and four woes. We're going to have, and I'm going to break this sermon up into five parts, all right? So let's jump in here and let's move to this. You're going to have to listen quick today, so just stay with me. We're going to go through this quickly. Verses 20 through 26, we're going to look at the blessings and the woes here. So if you're a note taker, here's the first point. First of five, the blessings and the woes. The kingdom of God reverses the world. The kingdom of God reverses the world. Verses 20 through 26. Let's see this together, beloved, okay? And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you 
when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, remember what I told you about that word? Pay attention. Your reward is great in heaven. For the fa- so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall not be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. All right, let's break this down a little bit here. Four blessings, four woes, first of all here. Here is the thing we got to realize. We must not be deceived by circumstances. We must not be deceived by circumstances. Things are not what they appear to be in this world. Remember when I said the values of the world mix those up and it flips it? I don't understand why we're consulting Bill Gates on COVID-19 issues. It makes no sense to me why the news and media outlets ask him why. I understand Bill Gates is one of the richest people that have ever lived. I understand that. I understand he has a brilliant mind for software and tech. But last time I checked, Bill Gates has no Ph.D. in medicine, <laughs> right? There's no need to consult a billionaire about, me- about medical issues. He doesn't know anything about them, right? Now, he may be able to get access to documents and things that we can't get access to because of his money, but it doesn't make sense to me. We're tempted to look at people who have a lot of money, who have been blessed with a lot of things, and we want to say... Look how God has blessed that person. And no doubt all good things come from God. I understand that. But you better pump the brakes and think about that for just a minute. Have you ever thought when you see somebody who's very rich that that money might be an albatross around their neck? It may be a great curse. I'm not saying that riches make you happy. I just want a chance to see if that's true, right? I'm just kidding. The riches they have may be a big curse. Think about this for just a minute. You ever watch documentaries on people who've won the lottery? You know how a lot of their lives end up? Terrible. They lose family. They lose friends. People get mad at them because they don't give them the money they think they deserve. And the relationships they thought they could count on and had that were really important to them all just turned into monetary things. And the people didn't care much about them. They just cared about what they could get out of them. And then they end up broken, like financially, broke financially, and broken uh, emotionally and spiritually. They're, they're just bankrupted. Uh, we've seen multiple times where many athletes have received big paychecks and apparently it is easier to make money than it is to keep money because a lot of times that money goes away quickly and they have to do other things to, to maintain. Sometimes riches are not the blessing, right? He says, but blessed are the poor. The poor what? They will receive the king. They will see the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus even talks about the difficulty for the rich to, to trust in the gospel, right? It's easier to enter through the, the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's not, you know, talking about an actual needle. There were these places, they were low-hanging places on walk paths. Everybody kind of had to dunk under as they were, you know, walkways between buildings to get under the eye of the needle. And the camels had to get down on their knees and move through. It was, it was possible. It was just difficult. And wealth makes reliance on God difficult. It makes reliance. It's not impossible. It's just difficult because you're trusted to trust your money and what you already have. And that is an albatross that is sure to sink you to the depths of hell if you don't turn loose of it. What do the poor have? The poor have what? They have Christ, right? They have Christ, and they have a coming rich and wellness that is there. 
Uh, blessed are those, what else does he say in this passage here? He said, blessed are those who weep. Right? The Old Testament tells us better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Does that mean Christians are supposed to walk around and be sad all the time and cry all the time? No. There's people that they are laughing on the outside and they're just dead inside. Right? They're constantly looking for amusement, entertainment, to be entertained and to escape, to laugh and not think about the problems and pressures of life. Jesus says, woe to those people. You need to pump the brakes and really evaluate. But to those who mourn, those who mourn their sin, those who mourn the, the circumstances as they are, Jesus says, you will be blessed and you will, you will be, receive joy in heaven. Blessed are the hungry, right? You know, I, uh, I'm a, I was told one time if I ever started a, a dives and dash, you know, show on YouTube that people would tune in and watch it, you know what I mean, to go and try all these different burger places and stuff like that. We, you know, I love a lavish meal and good food, as is abundantly clear from my, you know, the way that I look, right? Got a, I've got a, uh, what do you call it? Shoot. Put it on when you're cooking. Apron, right? I've got an apron, and it says, body built by burgers. Oh, I like that apron. And I love good, delicious food, all different kinds and types. The Bible says here what? Blessed are the hungry. They're going to be filled. Filled with what? Joining Jesus at the banquet, right? In, in, in Revelation 19. Uh, that, that is the place that uh, he's pointing us towards in the future. The day of the kingdom. God is the great reward. So there's four blessings and there's four woes here. That's the dominant theme in this section. As we're building up here in these five sections, the fourth one's the most important. Right? We're going to get there in just a minute. Second one here. Uh, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Right? Look at this next section in verse 27. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Man, that's reverse from the world, isn't it? Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak and do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lean, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Mm. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. All right, let's, let's look through this just real quick here, right? So Jesus says here, love your enemies. The kingdom enables us, if, if all this is true, Jesus has come, the gospel is true, Christ is showing us how to live, and he's reversed the world's values, the world's value system here. What that's going to do is the kingdom of God enables us to practice radical love. It enables us to practice radical love. So that's the second point here. Love the enemies because the kingdom enables us to practice radical love. If, what is, if stuff is not important and souls are truly important, 
then stuff doesn't matter as much, right? Uh, it enables you to freely love people. I was just, we have a little bit of a mystery on Mayfield right now. One of my neighbors had something stolen. And if you've ever had anybody, you know, steal from you or take something that was yours or not pay you back, isn't it funny how you can remember that forever? Like, you can just remember that forever, can't you? Like, it might have been, you know, it might have been 35 years that you were in kindergarten, right? But you can remember when that one kid stole that eraser out of your eraser box. So you can just, it just blazes into your brain, right? You can remember when you've been taken from. And here's what Jesus does. This is a, I mean, you know, what does the world teach us? The world teaches us the art of war, right? The world says, what do you do to your enemies? You crush them. Pretend like you're weak when you're strong. Pretend like you're strong when you're weak. Never let your enemy know if you struggle. Never be nice to your enemy. Crush your enemies, right? That's what the world teaches. And what does Jesus say here? No. Love your enemies, right? This is radically different. Uh, there's four things he says here, right? What are they? Look at this passage here. Love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. You could almost just end the sermon here, right? I mean, this is enough right here. I mean, this is this is really convicting. And I, I love what he says here, right? Somebody asks for your, you know, they want your coat. Take off your shirt and give them your shirt too. Don't, you know, here's one of the things we're seeing here. You know, when you're being abused by an enemy, when people treat you like an enemy, as Christians and followers of Christ, as kingdom people, we are nobody's victim. We're nobody's victim. Somebody comes to you and they steal from you and they want your coat, you know, take off your vest and give them the vest too. Go above and beyond how they may be abusing and what they're asking for you in abuse and give them more than they're asking for. And in so doing, you are not their victim. Because let me ask you this, was Jesus anyone's victim on the cross? Did the Romans really put him there? Could he have any moment just decided that I will take myself down and I'll call down legions? You better believe it, right? So we give more than is asked, even to our enemies. You know, here's what we're saying. We must live by kingdom values. And these, these four illustrations, right? The golden rule. You should treat others how you want to be treated. Uh, not give back what God has, has given back. We give back more, right? God will give us back more when we give those things up there. In many ways, what we're being reminded of here is what's of true value in our lives and our hearts, right? What is of true value in our life? You know, we're going to get to it here, and I'm very excited about it. The story of the prodigal son or the prodigal father, however you want to frame it. You know, he throws a fit. The elder brother throws, throws a fit. I've been here serving you faithfully all this time. You never killed even a goat for me, right? Something low on the totem pole. And the father, what's he say to him? Son, you've been with me always, right? And I have been with you. What's he saying? The true value in the household, the true inheritance, is to have a relationship with the father. All the stuff that we have are just reminders. All the good things you have in your life, they're just reminders of the good relationship and the good father that you have. So we can love people radically different. We can treat enemies radically different because we understand that stuff doesn't matter. God's relationship with us matters the most, and our relationship with others are more important. Right? Second thing here, the third thing, excuse me, verses 37 through 42, there is a single standard. Let's look at this here in 37 through 42. Judge not, you will not be judged. Now, I'm, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this verse because I'm going to tell you something. If there is a well-known verse today in our culture, it's this verse. 
this verse, like if you just left here today and you went down to Applebee's and you just, or down here to one of these kind of Mexican-like restaurants that we have here, like Walmart Mexican that we have, but we have it, right? If you've ever had real Mexican, you know what I'm talking about, you know. If it's not homemade tortillas, it's not real Mexican, okay? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's just the truth, right? But if you went down here and you just grabbed random people, non-church people, people that don't go to church, they're unchurched, whatever, they probably don't even are aware they're in that category, but you're saying, can you just quote me a Bible verse? You know what Bible verse they're going to quote you? They're not going to quote you John 3.16. They're going to quote you this verse right here. They're going to quote you something to the effect of Luke uh, 6.37. Judge not, you will not be judged. And I saw this in the culture very clearly in a comical, whimsical way in a TV show I used to watch called My Name is Earl. Has anybody ever seen that show before? I like that show because it reminds me of some family members that I have, right? <laughs> some extended family members. No, not the ones that are close by. Uh, the guy wins the lottery, and, and he, he meets this lady that uh, he's just trying to live a good life. Man. He's just trying to be good to everybody, but, you know, he's, uh, he's not had a lot in his life, and he's, he's trying to get through. Well, he meets this lady, and she is like, she's a compulsive liar. She has this drinking problem. She, she like, compulsively, I think she even stole stuff from different places, so she's a thief she's a liar, she's got a drinking, smoking problem, and she would constantly quote this verse after she did whatever she did. Alright, well, does that mean that you just never judge anybody ever? That's the way she's trying to make it mean, that's what she wants it to mean, in sort of a funny, whimsical way, and I think in a lot of ways that's what our culture wants this verse to mean, but we got to take a verse in context, right? You can take a verse out of context and say whatever you want to say with it. Let's see what Jesus says and expands here. Let's look on. Verse, uh, all right, Verse 38, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will it be put into your lap? For with the measure that you use, if you underline verses, please underline this one. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. All right, now let's think about this for a minute. What we're seeing here, the standard, what have we been looking at as we're building up to this next one? We've been looking at kingdom standards. We've been looking at the values being reversed. We've been looking at the woes and the blessings. It's all part of the same sermon. What we need is the kingdom demands here clear-eyed judgment. That's what I'm going to call it, clear-eyed judgment, right? We're going to see this in another little illustration he's going to give in just a minute. But when we judge other people. We do. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about a lot of legalistic churchgoers that I've met in my lifetime. People who have... You know, you know, women can't wear shorts or can't wear pants. They got to wear this shirt. They can't wear makeup. Can't play cards. You can only play rook. That's the only acceptable card game for Baptist anywhere. You know, and I thought about all these different legalistic issues and being judged by unbiblical standards. Okay, I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, if everybody would just love the way that Pastor T loves, this would be a wonderful place. And immediately, I was convicted. Right. <laughs> The Holy Spirit uh, didn't say this out loud, but the thought came into me. And that's the problem, isn't it? That kind of thinking where you're the standard and you think you are always the one who has it right. He makes it clear as he goes on and tells us here, right? Uh, look at the next verse here in verse 39. He also said to them, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Man, I've just about given up on the news because I feel like that's exactly what this is. See, the, the world just goes by a standard of what they see. And the world's standards are reversed from the kingdom standards. So, you know, people telling you that don't have anything to do with Christ, 
this is the way, follow me, come right this way, are blind and have no idea where the pathway is. To make it further clear, he says on this issue of judgment, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This sounds a lot like a warning in the New Testament. Not many of you should be teachers, right? Why is that? Why is this stuck here with judgment? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm glad you asked that question. Many people who assume preaching and teaching positions assume those preaching and teaching positions not out of clear-eyed kingdom judgment by the standard that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, but instead they teach out of their own perfect, their own personal hurts or their own selfishness. Right? And so he's saying, be careful there. Don't let, don't, you know, the preaching and the teaching here is about the, is linked directly to that parable of the blind man, right? A blind guy leading a blind guy. Follow me. Walk the way that I walk. Do the standards that I say. I am the standard. I know. I'm the knower. No, you're not. Christ is. Christ is the standard and his teaching is the standard. All right. Then he goes on, 41 and 42. Why do you see to, to the speck in your own brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Let me see if I can put this into perspective. I've been in ministry now since 2001. I would, if you came to me and said, Pastor, I went back home and visited my parents' church last Sunday, you're not going to believe what happened. I saw somebody walk in the church. They had a fern growing out of their forehead. I'd be like, you know what? That's par for the course. I've seen some crazy stuff in churches, right? Jesus gives this radical, crazy illustration. He says, don't try to pick the speck of dust out of somebody's eye when you got a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye, right? That, that is not the way that you do this. Is there a call to judge for God's people? Absolutely. But the call is the standard. You say, Pastor, I still don't get it. Good. I'm glad you say that because I'm going to give you something to help you with it. It's drawn directly from this text. What does he say here? The, the degree to which you will be measured, right? What is, what, I told you to underline that just a minute ago. Here's what he's saying. The people that you're judging and you're seeing as your enemies, right? Whether that's your spouse, your pastor, church leaders, fellow congregants here at Grace Baptist Church people in your family or co-workers whoever falls into that category for you right when i do marital counseling what i love to, when 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 couples come in and they're really at each other they're really at each other's throats i'd say you know it looks to me like you guys are treating each other like enemies jesus says you still gotta love each other anyway right so you made it because you made the vow commitment and then also you treat it like an enemy your response should be like jesus here here's my question for you to evaluate if you're getting the standard right do you want to be judged by the same level and expectations that you hold others to? So, husbands, do you want to be judged by what you hold your wives to? Wives, do you want to be judged by what you hold your husbands to? Church members, do you want to be judged by the expectations you have for your pastor? Pastors, do you want to be judged by the expectations you have for your church members? Parents, do you want to be judged by the expectations you have for your children? Children, do you want to be judged by the expectation you have for your parents? That's what he's saying, right? So yeah, judge. Have, have clear understanding by the reversed standards of the kingdom, right? Clear-eyed kingdom expectations of one another and live according to that. All right, we've been building up here. We're now at number four. We're getting close to the end. Not quite there. Fourth one, verses 43 through 45, is the integrity of heart. The kingdom produces consistent fruit. The kingdom produces consistent fruit. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a tree, does a bad tree bear good fruit. 
For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from brumble bushes. From a brumble bush. All right. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his heart treasure out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Okay, there's a lot, a lot in this verse. These kingdom standards and values, this kingdom instruction is really landing here on four. Because four is saying, look, it's pretty much impossible to love your enemies to judge accordingly with clear-eyed kingdom judgment if you're not treasuring Christ in your heart, right? Do you see that in the text? I must fill my heart with what I want to produce for Christ. I must fill it with what I want to produce for Christ. The kingdom here, kingdom will produce consistent fruit. You know, your DNA is going to show itself. It just is. When I used to work construction, I worked for Dad, I would get out of my truck some mornings, and if there was another contractor that knew my dad, would come over and say things to me like, hey, do you know Jack Tyler? And I'd be like, actually, I do quite well. He's my dad. And they would say, well, you know, you look like him, and you kind of walk like him. It's like, well, yeah, because your DNA gives you away, doesn't it? Who you are at a DNA level is what is produced. What does that mean spiritually? Well, listen, when people come into the doors of the church, and they're not living by treasuring Christ. They're, they're broken, and they're living under an ever-changing world system of values. They're not going to dress like you dress. They're not going to talk like you talk. They're not going to use the words that you use. What do you do? You judge them and beat them over the head with a Bible for that? And make them look just like you do and talk like you do? No, sir, no, ma'am. You love them in a way that Christ would have you love them. You treat them much like Jesus did the woman at the well. And you are patient with them. You are patient with them, right? Because it's not about making uniformity happen at the church, at the worship services. It's about treasuring Christ in your relationship first and foremost. And I'm going to tell you something. When you treasure Christ, it has an effect on people around you. It has an effect on people around you. It will spill over and get on them. The reverse is true as well. If you're treasuring evil in your heart and you're treasuring evil thoughts and you're primarily placing evil things in your life, that's going to overflow and get on the people around you as well. The integrity here, the, the principle here is from a heart that produces, that treasures Christ, consistent fruit will grow. What kind of fruit, right? Love, joy, patience, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's also a reverse to that that we see in Scripture as well. So that is, that is the kind of the main point of this sermon, the main thrust there being treasuring Christ, treasuring the kingdom. Finally, last point here, verses 46 through 49. We're almost here, about to land this thing. You know, when I sit here, it makes my, makes my foot feel better, but it hurts my tailbone where I fell in the shower. You know, you can't do one or the other. Right? All right, here we go. Verse 5, the response of faith, the kingdom demands action. Oh, before I go on to this, I thought of one more thing I wanted to say about the last one. As a pastor, I see many of you trying to treasure Christ. And you're, you're treasuring Christ in such a way that you're really concerned when you fall short of these kingdom standards of loving your enemy, of you know judging correctly, uh, or when you don't judge correctly, whenever you need to rebuke yourself or receive a rebuke from another. How many of you ever heard of Watchman Nee? 
Chinese pastor years ago. Anybody ever heard of him before? He was a very well-known Chinese pastor. Watchman Nee, I know some of his later theology is questionable, but this is a great illustration. He had one of his members come to his house one day, and they said this to Watchman Nee. They said, Pastor, no matter how much I read or pray, I'm unable to live for the Lord. I, I feel this constant sense of failure. Can you resonate with that? Does that resonate with you? Here's what Watchman Nee said to this, to, this, uh, to this member of his church. He said, you see this dog right here? He said, yeah. That's my dog. I love my dog. My dog comes when I call my dog. My dog does not make a mess. My dog greets me every day when I come home. I love my dog. He said, but look in the kitchen there. See that little boy in the kitchen? He said, yeah. He said, that's my son. I love my son. But my son doesn't always greet me when I come home. My son does not always come when I call him. And my son is prone to make messes. But when I die, my son will inherit everything I have, not my dog. Boy, I get you, doesn't it? What is Christ saying here, right? He treasures you, doesn't he? He treasures you. He's not giving you these things so that you can get your ticket punched to heaven. He's giving you these things to live by out of a heart, treasuring Christ out of gratitude for what is given on the cross. We have Christ. These are the household rules for being sons and daughter of the living king. All right. Finally, response. The response of faith. Look at verse 5. The kingdom's action, verses 46 through 49. He ends here with a challenge and a warning. Challenge and a warning. Let's see if we can see these here in these verses. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not tell me... Uh, do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And a flood arose and the stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had been uh, well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. All right. What's Jesus saying in these verses? Well, the response of faith is this. The kingdom of God demands action. It demands action. Here, the kingdom demands action. To know this and to not to do this is to fail. Right? That's what he's saying. It is about doing. It must be, we must, I must do what Jesus says. It's not enough just to know truth. Uh, look at the warning here Jesus is giving us. Someone who hears me were and, and does them, they're like a house of a man who builds on the rock. Well, what's the rock? That's Jesus Christ, right? And I love the way it says it here. Uh, when the stream broke. Many of us in here are old enough to realize the stream in our life is going to break. Or perhaps some of you, it's already broken. It's not a question of when the stream will, if the stream will break. It will break. The question is, when it breaks, what have you been building your life with? What are the actions of your life? What are you building with? What are you building on? You know, my dad told me three things one time to look for when I buy a house. Three things to look for when I build, right? 
I'm going to have to go to buy my own. I've lived by these three things because he's a builder and he knows. Number one, don't buy any house built before 1976 because of asbestos and lead paint. Okay. Number two, don't buy a house that sits below the grade of the road because water will continue to be a problem, especially here in East Tennessee. Water gets a structure long before termites ever does. And then number three, make sure the foundation of that house is solid. And he gave me a quick way to check. Do you know how to check the foundation of a house is solid by not even going inside? It's the roof line. The roof line sags, the foundation is poor, weak, and will have to be replaced. That's the most expensive piece of a house to replace is the foundation. In a similar fashion here, right? What's the foundation of your life? Is it Christ? Does the roof sag? Because you built it on the sifting sand of culture, on the values of this world that forever change and are forever blinded to the truth of the kingdom and what's really valuable? Or is your life built on the rock of Jesus Christ so that when the water breaks, when it hits the foundation, your home and your action and your life is not swept away and destroyed to where all that look around say, well, I guess really nothing was there to that faith. Or does it hold strong when the, when the, when the stream breaks? That's what Christ is saying here, isn't it? It's a call to action. I'll end this with an illustration. I love this Bible Becky got from me on a Christmas not too long ago. So notes here from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorites. Uh, and he writes this. This is late 1800s in speaking on this section. That too many consider that the services of the sanctuary, that's what we're doing here, gathering together for the preaching of the word and singing and worship, are intended merely to feed them. They never look on the house of God as a barricades for soldiers or a place where workmen come together to sharpen their tools. They only regard it as a sacred shop, a spiritual pantry, and a heavenly lunchroom where much is to be received and little or nothing returned. I hope at Grace Baptist Church this morning that we are kingdom value people. That we don't just come in here to be filled up and check to see if the pastor's sermon's up to snuff, which, by the way, those are stupid things that people have said to me as a pastor over the years. Real conversations with silly people, right? But that we're coming in here to radically love one another, to build lives on the rock of Christ and to be there when the, when the river breaks so that people around us are just stunned because we're so different. We're so countercultural to the ones that are around us. But we love our enemies in such a way people cannot believe how we bless them, pray for them, and even help them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage today and the truth that is here. Lord, this is a call individually and this is a call collectively, a call to action. God, the temptation in our culture is that we're just forever consumers, that we would just consume truth and just consume truth and just consume truth and not be doers. Lord, help us to live by kingdom standards, by God's household standards. Help us to live in such a way that we understand the illustration that Watchman Nee gave, that we're not just going to be a people who are just obedient like a dog, but people who understand how God loves us and treasures us. That we will seek to live these things, not because they get us into heaven, but because our hearts are so filled with a love and a treasure for Christ that 
we can do nothing more than what he's called us to do in these verses. God, thank you for freeing us to be able to love people radically by making clear to us what's truly important in this world, our relationship with you and our relationships with others. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Primarily been speaking today to believers, but if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never trusted him, you've never built your house on the rock with that foundation, won't you do that today? Won't you trust Christ so you can love radically, so you can love your enemy? You can be free to love others as Christ desires you to do so. I'll be at the snack shack to receive you here in response as we sing. Please stand.